0: quick encouragement we started the bridge course on Wednesday very encouraging night we had a great time we had four guests and a couple of them that were planning on coming couldn't make it so this Wednesday we're looking for two or three more to come we had a wonderful discussion with some folks that are just thinking about Christianity and wanting to learn and wanting to know And so we had a great time around the table, had dinner together, got to know each other, watched a teaching that was very engaging and easy to talk about and had a wonderful discussion with these folks. So thank you. This was a wonderful team effort to reach some people. And I was particularly struck with a reality of God's kingdom about the real work of the ministry, the real work that takes place. Jeanette McMahon was there. And brought some guests. Jeff and Roxanne were there helping us with this. They also brought some guests. And it, it dawned on me how important the real work of ministry of these folks. And if you know anything about Jeanette, now for years and years she has been a source of bringing the gospel into people's lives over and over again. Amen. And uh, Amen it was so beautiful to see and to, and to realize, this. you know, when we think about the work of the ministry, you might be inclined to think that's me standing here preaching a sermon, but that's not what the bible refers to as the work of the ministry. This is just a huddle to cheer you on and tell you how to how to play the game and what what play we're going to run and how it's going to be. The real work of the ministry is when you leave this place and you start interacting with folks, and you share Christ and God's grace uh, with them. So anyway, well done. Thank you. Thank you for praying for the bridge course. Thank you for those you invited. Keep inviting them. Uh, This was a wonderful team effort. We're excited about the beginning that we had, and God's going to do wonderful things. Wouldn't it be great to see more folks come to know the Lord? (laughs) That testimony about the Treloers and Jeanette in particular, but that goes for many of you. I know this is going on. You, You, you visit the sick. You care for people. You talk to friends and neighbors uh, about the Lord. That testimony and that reality right there is actually a great introduction to the message today from Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is a very important lesson for us about how God accomplishes his plan. It marks a significant next step in God's plan, in God's agenda. Maybe you remember well back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, there's a very important key verse of the entire book of Acts where the, in a sense the plan is laid out up front. This is what God is going to do. It says something like this, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In Acts chapter 8, we are shown how the movement goes from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. In other words, right out of the playbook from chapter 1, verse 8, Here's the movement. Here's where it happened. Here was the first phase outside of Jerusalem. God's plan is being carried out, and it's taking place in the few verses that we're going to read in just a minute. But it comes out in a very unexpected way. The plan is advanced in an entirely different way than anyone anticipated. Our text is going to show us that in just a day, the church in Jerusalem finds itself despised, under harsh persecution, in mourning over a great loss, and forced to flee to places they did not want to go to. But in, even in the midst of all this, this church remained faithful to do what many of you folks do regularly, tell others about the grace of God in Christ. They remain faithful to this task. They remain faithful to care for the needs of the people around them. And these simple acts of faithfulness under such dire and unexpected circumstances, the kingdom of God made it significant advance. What I hope for all of us to see this morning is that the church often... Faces, variables of opposition and loss. And yet, with God's power and our faithfulness, God accomplishes his plan for the world. Simply put, God advances his kingdom through his power and the faithful church. I hope we walk away with that simply settled into our hearts with a fresh sense of of faith. It's not man's strategy. It's not our ingenuity. It's not even necessarily our hard work. It's our faithfulness to God and God's power and His kingdom advances. Let's read eight verses from Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution, referring to Stephen's execution that had just taken place. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The title of the message today, Joy in the City. This is what the Lord is doing in and through his church. We start off in the beginning, we're told in the first verse, that we have a persecuted church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem as a city had decided Christianity is not wanted here. That's what came about with Stephen when they executed him. They stoned him publicly. It was a citywide statement. We are saying Christianity is not for us. It needs to be stopped. It needs to be eliminated. It's not for our good. It's not for the good of our society. It's not for the good of our religion. We want to put it out. It is not wanted here. It said that day a great persecution began. In the Greek, it's really helpful to read great persecution because it says mega persecution. I like that. I think we can relate to that okay it was a mega persecution what was going on okay so just understand we're not talking about a funny look from your coworker, or a condescending comment from your neighbor it's not a little snide look or a rolling of the eyes when you say you're a christian okay that's in the category but it's not a mega persecution what we're talking about here is it was dangerous It was violent. There was real threat and real trouble for the Christians in Jerusalem at this time. It was a time to run for your life. It was a time to move, hide, escape the danger because the violence was upon you. Here we have Saul being introduced to us for the first time in Acts. We will know and find out that this Saul gets converted in another chapter, and he becomes really the greatest theologian, the greatest pastor, the greatest church planter, the greatest missionary that you can imagine. But he is none of that here. At this point, he is, as he will tell us later, the chief of sinners. Why? Because he persecuted the church. This man was zealously out to get the Christians. I don't know if you can imagine somebody going door to door, banging on your door. Are there any believers here? Let me interview them. I hear stories from my my mother. My parents were young children in the Netherlands during the German occupation. So my mother was a young girl she tells stories of when the Germans would come into their home. She would hide under the, under the table, under the skirt of the table, or hide behind her mother's, my grandmother's large skirt as the Germans were sitting in, in their room and interrogating them and asking them. And it turns out, actually, my grandparents were hiding Jews and they were found. My grandfather, as I understand it, was actually sent on a train to the concentration camps But he escaped, jumped off the train, and went into hiding for the rest of the war. So my mother and her sisters and my grandmother rarely saw him throughout the rest of the war. He would stop in to check in, but he did not live at home until the war was over. She tells me these stories, and I begin to relate. What must must it have been like to be occupied by a force that was out to destroy you, to overtake you, to overcome you, and to rid the world. Now, they were not Jewish. They were hiding Jews. But can you imagine being Jewish anywhere, especially in Europe at that time? It was mega persecution. It's what was going on in Jerusalem. It's what Saul was doing to Christians At the time, men, women, didn't make any difference. No mercy. Violent, aggressive. Let's be rid of these Christians. The church was also lamenting the loss of Stephen. Stephen was an inspiring, admirable leader in the church. Luke writes some high praises for this man. A man full of grace and power who contended for the faith with great wisdom. Nobody could withstand. As he voiced the opinions and contended for the faith, you couldn't argue with him. He was too sharp. He was too wise. The spirit of the Lord was clearly upon him. And they had just watched him get publicly executed. I know many of you probably most of you Christians in the room, you've had situations in your life where you stopped and you said, why God? Why did you allow this? Why is it going this way? Couldn't you have stopped this? Now, can you imagine being a part of this early church in Jerusalem and the struggle of saying, God, why him? Why not me? Why not somebody else? Why not somebody obscure? He was a key guy. He was a great man. He was a wonderful man. He was inspiring. The Spirit of God was all over him. If you're going to take somebody out, if you're going to eliminate somebody, Lord, why would you choose him of all people? In fact, you could almost make the case he would be the one guy you should not take out of the picture here. And yet, they watched him die. And it said, devout men had a great lamentation, great mourning. I'm not sure you and I can fully appreciate the amount of faith that this took. Now, we don't know historically at this time if it actually was against the law. Later in Jewish history, we know it was against the law to mourn the death of an executed criminal. So we can somewhat safely assume this was taboo, okay? You have to be careful whose funeral you went to or how you went to that funeral, how you would mourn. And when you have a convicted criminal against society and they are executed and you make a big deal out of mourning and lamenting over them, you are putting yourself at risk. That is not looked well upon. And yet, devout men, great lamentation. It's been very interesting. This is just a small piece of the sermon, but my wife Tammy has been studying the concept of lamenting. Uh, A a tool that the Lord's given us is so significant, And and I really am just... Convicted, as I'm being made more aware, I don't believe the church realizes or knows or apprehends this grace gift of lament. We know how to complain quite well. We know how to give God the silent treatment and to withdraw. We do, we're, we're quite good at that. We've really developed some skills in how to respond to those situations where we say, God, why did you allow this? Why is this going the way it is? We've had a lot of very consistent responses to things like that. I'm not sure we've really apprehended and availed ourselves of the actual gift that the Spirit of God has given to us called lamentation, lament. To learn how to take your sorrow to the Lord and find the Lord in and through a crying, sorrowful, mourning heart. I see a teaching series in the future for us because it's a lost art, but it is a needed art. If we do not know how to respond in a godly way to real sorrow, real loss, and many of you in the room, you have experienced some real loss, loss of a loved one, loss of a friend, loss of your health, loss of your future, whatever it might be and learning this gift of how to lament. We have a church. The realities of the church at this stage in Jerusalem, they're living in a city supposedly that they love, but now they're hated and unwanted and despised. They're living in a city that doesn't want them. They're living under dangerous and violent persecution. And they are in the midst of lamenting the loss of someone they cherished deeply and respected and admired and benefited from. Friends, thankfully the circumstances throughout church life is not always as bad as it is in Acts chapter 8. But we're given here a picture, almost like a worst-case scenario, to make a point. And the reality is, no matter where you live and when you live, there is an aspect of belonging to Christ that always puts you in the position of somehow, to some extent, we really don't want you here. You really don't fit in society. We're really not convinced you're for the good of this society. That is the nature of the kingdom. So while we thank God for the lack of that kind of sentiment, you all know it does still exist in a variety of ways, in different contexts, at different times. And the point is, it is a reality of belonging to Christ a reality of being a member of God's church. And of course, many of you know, we are not immune to suffering loss, to experience that kind of sorrow, that why God, I don't don't understand, I don't know what you're doing, I don't know why you would do this. And so we have a similar kind of sorrow that comes in and out of our lives at different times. So we find ourselves needing to learn how to lament, This situation leads to the church being scattered. Okay, we're going from bad to worse. Point number two, we've got a scattered church. First, we have a persecuted church. In other words, here we are in Jerusalem, and they don't like us here. So they have to run for their lives, and now we have a scattered church, and they escape into the regions of Judea and Samaria. Okay, But immediately when we read that, you should perk up, and Acts 1 8 should come to mind. Oh, oh, God said something about these places, and now we're seeing it come about. And the story sort of unfolds and zeroes in on Samaria, which they have assorted 1,000 year history with. Do you see what's happening? I was in a city I love, but they don't like me and don't want me. And so I run from my life, and I go to a city that I don't like. I don't like these people. I don't want to be here. We've been at odds with these folks for a 1,000 years. You talk about racial problems, division, and strife. And many of us know some of this, some of you, all too well. This was that the Jews and the Samaritans were at odds for a long time. It went way back a thousand years when the kingdom divided and ten tribes uh, after the death of King Solomon broke away and started their own. And over time, this animosity and this division kept to build until finally they built their own temple. And now there's two places of worship. The the people of God are severely divided. Do you remember the story of Jesus when he talked to the woman at the well? Do you remember the parts of that conversation? We worship here and you worship there. That's what she was talking about. We're the Samaritans. We've got our own church, our own temple, our own place. Why are you even talking to me? Not only is it strange for you to talk to a woman, it's really strange for you to talk to a Samaritan. We don't have anything to do with each other. We're divided. There's a lot of animosity between us. Forced to leave a city that didn't want them. Forced into a city they didn't want. They found themselves refugees in a place that had the worst possible racial Divide. I'm glad that all of us are not living in such a dire situation. But here again, God is showing a kind of worst case scenario to tell us something true about the church. The reality is, if you are in Christ, there is a dimension where you are a stranger, an alien. A resident alien in the place you live. See, they didn't want to move to Samaria because the traffic is terrible. Price of gas was $5 a gallon. The real estate costs were exorbitant. They said, Samaria, L.A., is the last place that we would want to live. We don't want, we don't like it there. Their politics are lousy. I don't agree with it. I don't like the way they do things. It's too expensive. It's too crowded. I need some space. I need some nature. But here you are, forced to live here. With all this we see a faithful church. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to build a case. Everything's wrong for these people. Everything's going wrong for these Christians. And yet when they're scattered and they're pressed into the city of Samaria and the regions of Judea, it says they went about preaching the word. That phrase is a little misleading because again, you think this I am preaching the word to you. And you think that's what that phrase means. Somebody stands up in front of a group and preaches the word. But the phrase here and the context here is not that. This time, it's like you and your neighbor. And you with your coworker, And you with your extended relative who doesn't know the Lord. This is people, not professional, on-the-payroll ministers. These are the Christians in the pews, living their lives, telling others about who Jesus is. They are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in their New neighborhoods that they didn't want to live in, that they were running for their lives, for their safety, and they're telling people about Jesus. I'm convicted because I have a long list of reasons why I should not at this time witness to that person. And they get on the airplane, and I would really like some alone time now on this flight. I would like to read my book and not get to know the person next to me or strike up a conversation with them. And I'm kind of busy fixing up my garage, and so I really would not like to stop and talk to my neighbor right now and see if there's an opportunity for the gospel there because I've got so much going on, you know, They're despised. They're running for their lives. They're forced into a place they don't want to be. They're in danger. They don't know if Saul's going to cross the border and start looking over there as well. But trouble is on their heels. And what do we find these people doing? Preaching the word to the people around them. think that's remarkable friends it tells me that they knew the gospel they knew what the message was they had something to say apparently they were quite compelled to talk about something that was so vital and so important so important to them and apparently they concluded so important to the people that they were talking to as well. Somehow they had it clear in their minds that God has acted in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf to save us and make us his own. Somehow they had a very clear understanding that we were created by God and we were created for God, regardless of what race we have come from but that we must be reconciled to God and that God himself has provided the only way for that reconciliation to take place through faith in the one who died on the cross and was raised from the dead for our salvation. Somehow they knew that. Somehow they had a framework that was clear about what the word of God was and it came out in conversation. If you've been around for a while, you've, you've heard me say many times, one of my favorite things about my job is doing new member interviews. Well, there is a certain point in each interview that is my favorite part of my favorite thing. And if you, you've all, most of you have been there, and so you know this is, this is what I do. When you're sitting in my office and we're having this membership interview, at one point I say, would you tell me what is the gospel? When I say that phrase, the gospel, would you, I'm preparing you, if you're thinking about joining the church, just so you know, a little heads up, okay, a little spoiler alert, this is what goes on behind closed doors here. And I asked that question, and I've had, well, okay, a few people stumble and a little coaching. For the most part, I have some of the most amazing encounters of God's Spirit as I'm sitting there listening to you tell me the gospel. And the components of the word is always the same, but each time it's somewhat unique. And you have your phrases and your perspective, and you tell me about what Christ has done And the effect and change that it's made upon you. And I sit back in each of these interviews and my soul gets refreshed again and again. It's it's a funny thing. I'm not asking you what the gospel is because I don't know. I know what it is. I know what I'm listening for. I know what I'm hoping you will say to me. Sometimes I'm even prodding a couple of you to say the thing that I hope you will say to me. And yet, you say it to me, and my heart warms. And I'm encouraged, and I'm strengthened. And if we get through that conversation, and I am saying in my soul, they get it. They get it. Christ for me. Not, I try my best. I really think I'm doing okay. I know I got some problems. But I'm, I'm, I'm an honest chap, you know. I'm, 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 doing, you know. Okay, stop right there. Let's let's back up. Let's try again. Okay, you don't get it. But when people start telling me some version of Christ in my place, yes, yes, you get it. It's beautiful. The church knew the gospel. And they found ways to integrate that into their lives, their conversations, their marketplace conversations, their workplaces, their trips to Home Depot to get their new home in Samaria arranged for them. Despised, lamenting, displaced refugees still had it in their hearts to simply tell others who Christ is and what he'd done for them. I find it an amazing picture. It's the simple commitment to faithfulness in the midst of everything that could be wrong, being wrong, led to the significant advance of God's plan. Do you see what's happening? Well, point number three, a joyful city. Here's the result. Our little section of eight verses ends with this statement, and there was much joy in the city. This is the end game. This is sort of a little conclusive statement that Luke writes. This is what it's all about. The advance of God's kingdom leads to a joy-filled city. Philip is highlighted in Samaria, one of the seven chosen to serve the church, he enters Samaria, he proclaims Christ. He performs signs and wonders similar to what Jesus did, similar to what the apostles did. Unclean spirits that tormented people came out. People were healed, paralyzed people, got feeling back, got nerves back. They were healed. They were walking about. And Philip, as he was performing these signs and wonders seeing that these were clear expressions for people's well-being, just like Jesus did, meeting the immediate needs of the people with the power of God, it says, and they listened to what he had to say. They were in one accord, enraptured in his presentation. As he was telling these people the gospel, their ears were opened wide because he stepped in and clearly was operating and doing what was for their benefit. Just put a little pin in that for next week because we're going to meet another man who wanted to do lots of miracles for a very different reason. But what became very clear with Philip was like, I want your best. I want your well-being. I'm, I'm here for the power. Pa- And he told them, he told them the message. You know, it's good for us to apply this and think broadly enough about serving, acts of kindness, good deeds towards others, bringing meals, donating clothes, giving money, giving rides, visiting, all good things. All fit into this category of people of God working for the well-being of the people in their society in order to open up the way for the gospel to come in and touch people's lives. But friends, let's not forget the reality of the supernatural work of God here. Without delving into one of our values of being continuationist, we do, in fact, believe God's power is still at work and we ought to be praying and seeking and asking for God's supernatural, miraculous power to be at work in our midst, in the lives of people. Not for our glory, not for our reputation, but for their well-being. And so I don't want to sidestep that reality of what was going on here in Acts chapter 8. It was not limited to the apostles. Philip was not in the list of the apostles, and yet he was gifted by the Spirit to do miraculous things in the lives of these people that he was sent to reach. May it be so for us as well. The result, there was much joy in that city. Our short text gives us a contrast They started off in Jerusalem. They started off in a city that was throwing them out, a city that was filled with hatred and animosity and violence. They had to flee. It was a terrible place to be. It was a dangerous place to be. And they're forced to go somewhere else. And what's the concluding statement that Luke gives us about that city? There's much joy there. Okay, now now we see the power of God. We're in a city that is rejecting the gospel. They executed Stephen over it, and it started a great persecution. So in the city that rejects God's word, it's violent, it's hateful, it's destructive, it's not a safe place to be. But the church gets pushed out into a different place and they preach the gospel to these people, and they serve the well-being of those people, and now we have a city filled with joy. Friends, this is supposed to envision us. And let's make a safe assumption that the Christians that are being spoken about here, that it dawned on them, it was all worth it. And now we see the hand of God at work. It's not hard for us to imagine how many times you say, God, why are you doing this? This doesn't seem right. Everything seems wrong about what's happening to us as a church, as the people of God. And yet, at the end of eight verses, it becomes crystal clear. God was carrying out his plan. Okay, this this was the biggest, unwanted, non-volunteered-for missionary trip ever. Would anybody like to go to Samaria where you're thinking about going in and walking the streets and sharing the gospel there? We hope we'll get a church planted in Samaria. Do we have any takers? Absolutely not. Nobody wanted to go. But God wanted them to go. There's a little bit of a Jonah story going on here. Go. No. Yeah. You're going anyway. And through all the difficulty and all the hardship, I'm assuming that their hearts opened up wide at some point and realized what God had just accomplished. And Stephen's execution, the brutality in Jerusalem the having to leave home and relocate, the having to go to L.A., of all places, began to make sense because they saw God's hand at work in it all. God's plan was accomplished. In fact, they were very much witnesses in Jerusalem and in the parts of Judea and in Samaria. And the agenda goes on, and there will be more. We just read phase one of the expansion of God's kingdom, and we saw how God brought it about for his glory. This was not coming out of the apostolic kingdom expanding church planting retreat where they devise their plan on how we're going to get the gospel out into these other regions. But please hear, I'm not saying we shouldn't have strategies or we wouldn't th- shouldn't think about expansion. We're going to see the Apostle Paul lay out one of the most ingenious expansions of the gospel as we continue through the book of Acts. The point here and what God is wanting us to see and increase our faith for is that God advances his kingdom with merely a faithful church. And that should inspire us, and that should motivate us. Because the work of the ministry, it's not writing sermons, okay? It's not graduating from theological schools, It's not writing papers. It's not winning debates and arguments. The the work of the ministry is the stuff that you folks are doing day in and day out. And we saw the fruit of it on Wednesday night in our living room as folks were invited in and we can talk to them about who Jesus really is. And by God's grace, that faithfulness And God's power will result in much joy in this city. And we can tell stories about our history, about all the dark times and difficult times and the horrible years and the setbacks and all the things that have taken place in the Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena's history. And it will all begin to make sense and come into focus because we'll begin to see God's hand. How it was at work through it all, bringing more joy to the city. Worship team, you can come on up. There's a reason you're here. There's a reason we are here. And before you try and figure out your personal life and articulate that, I want to lift your eyes up and have you see God's hand in it all. He's called us here. You're here for this time. Did they want to stay in Samaria? Probably not. Did they want to go back to Jerusalem? Probably. But in Acts chapter 8, 1 through 8, they were in parts of Judea, and they were in Samaria, and they knew what to do while they were there. And because they did it, God's power was present, and the city was filled with joy. Can you and I be a part of that? Can you and I see that, realize that, and embrace that with our whole heart and see what the power of God does? Let's stand together.